0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. You may be seated, and I did that on purpose. We have a uh, longer reading uh, this evening as we uh, study uh, a portion of the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark together. Our sermon text is going to be uh, verses 21 uh, through 28, uh, but for the sake of context, we're going to read from the beginning of the book, the Gospel of Ma- or the Gospel of Mark, rather. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, "Prepare the way of the Lord; make his path straight." John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judah and of and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat, with the hired servants, and followed him. This is our sermon text. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him, cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere, throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon our time this evening again. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray now that as we turn to your word that you would show us the Savior and his glory. Conform us, we pray, into his image for the sake of your glory and our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever noticed how you can learn so much about a person without ever speaking a word to them. Think about it for a moment. You can learn a lot about someone just by observing the interactions that they have with other people, can't you? Think, for instance, of a scene you might see around the church. You might see, for instance, a small child running up and jumping into the arms of an adult. And you see there a warm embrace between that adult and that child. And you can look upon that scene and immediately realize something about the relationship of these two people. You can almost see the love, as it were, demonstrated in bodily form as they squeeze one another. And you can see them looking at one another and seeing that this is the look that only a child gives to a parent. And only a parent to a child think of a, a less uh, enjoyable example maybe some of you have worked in a workplace with an overbearing boss or maybe you've observed a workplace with an overbearing boss and you know what it looks like when that particular boss comes into work for the day in the morning and everybody's standing around chatting and immediately when he enters the room everybody's mood changes they get quiet they get dour The excitement's gone because here comes this person who they're intimidated by, who they're uh, in some ways oppressed by. And you can see expressions on their faces. You can see their body language change. And you can realize something about the relationship that these people have with this man. Well, this is just a common part of our experience. We see this kind of thing happen to all the time. We learn about people all the, all the time through watching the interactions they have with others. And as we come to the Gospel of Mark this evening and we examine the particular portion of the Gospel that we're looking at, what's interesting about it is that we hardly see Jesus saying anything. And actually, we see very little, propositionally speaking, told to us about Jesus, You see, what Mark presents us with here is not information about Jesus so much as it is observations of reactions to Jesus. Did you notice that? Jesus speaks a grand total of seven words in this passage, and yet we learn an enormous amount about him. And it's not because Mark tells us, really, is it? because he shows us. You see, we see three reactions to Jesus' teaching here in this passage. We see immediately in verses 21 and 22 the reaction of the people in the synagogue. What do they do? Well, when Jesus begins to teach them, they are amazed. They're astounded at the nature of Jesus' teaching. And then as the text continues, we're confronted in verses 23 and 24 with a very different kind of reaction, aren't we? We don't see a reaction of amazement on the part of the people. We see a reaction of what we could probably call dread and terror on the part of the demon. And then last of all, we see another reaction on the part of the people in verses 25 and 28 to Jesus' exorcism of the demon. This time they react also in amazement, but they react in amazement not so much at the nature of Jesus' teaching but of the power of Jesus' words. And what the text is trying to teach us here, as we observe, as we read the text, is it's trying to teach us about the authoritative nature of Jesus. You note that authority shows up both in verse 22 and in verse 27. It couches, as it were, the text. It encloses it, marks it out as an important concept for us, marked us here. But what Mark is seeking to tell us is he's seeking to tell us about Jesus' messianic authority. And the way he does that is by showing us these reactions to the preaching of Jesus Christ. In other words, what he's seeking to do for us is he's seeking to do for us what Jesus did for these people there that day. He's seeking to cause us to consider the reality that as we witness Jesus' ministry here, we must, as these people did, reckon with the messianic authority of Jesus Christ displayed before us. Displayed before us in the nature of his teaching, in the significance of his appearance, and in the power of his words. And that's what, God willing, we're going to do this evening. We're going to look first in verses 21 and 22 at the nature of Jesus' teaching. Then we're going to move on in verses 23 and 24 to see the significance of Jesus' appearance. And then last of all, we're going to examine the verses 25 through 28 and see the power of Jesus' words. Look with me then, if you will, as we begin to consider the text at verse 21. We'll read it again here. He says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So the passage opens with Jesus coming into the city of Capernaum. Now, the city of Capernaum, if you're not familiar, is going to be something like the ministry headquarters for Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, or at least for the first portion of the Gospel of Mark. He's going to do a lot of ministry out of Capernaum. And here we see him coming in for the first time. And as he enters Capernaum, he immediately, there's Mark's favorite word, goes into the synagogue and begins to teach. It's interesting there that he's welcomed, it seems, into the synagogue. Most likely, Jesus has already been recognized by the people in this synagogue as a teacher. We know he's began his ministry back in verses 14 and 15. And in that day, if a recognized teacher came to town, he was invited often to speak in the synagogue, the local synagogue, and was free, really, to teach whatever he will. Sometimes scholars refer to this as the freedom of the synagogue. And here it seems that Jesus takes advantage of this freedom. They welcome him in, and he begins to teach. It seems that they got a bit more than they were asking for, doesn't it? Because in verse 22, they are astounded at his teaching. That's interesting. They're astounded at his teaching. Why? Why are they astounded at his teaching? Well, the answer to that question is twofold. We see it there in the text. First, he taught them as one who had authority, positively. And then second, negatively, he didn't teach them as the scribes taught, which might raise the question in our mind, well, how do the scribes teach? It's a good question, really. It's interesting that the commentators spend a decent amount of time on it, and I think it's worthwhile telling you a little bit about scribal teaching in this day scribal teaching in this day would have been similar to if I was to step into this pulpit this evening and to begin to read to you just large sections of commentaries I had studied throughout the week. And instead of saying anything really positively to you, I would just say to you, well, you know, Calvin says this and uh, Jerome says this and so and so says this. Well, that's what scribal teaching was like. They would stand up and they would begin to explain the text, but really not the text so much as the Jewish interpretation of the text. All of the great rabbis of years gone by, they would bring to bear to seek to press upon their teaching on the congregation. You might ask the question, well, why did they do that? seems kind of boring. It does sound kind of boring. The reason they did that was because they realized... They didn't have any authority. A scribe in and of himself, well, he doesn't have any authority to say anything, does he? He's just a scribe. He's just a guy who studies stuff. To have any authority, he has to try to find it from outside of himself. And that's really the key to what we see astonishing the people in the synagogue here. You see, it's not just because the rabbis were corrupt and evasive in their reasoning and trivial in their ramblings. It's not just because they lacked love for their hearers and lacked even love for their subject. But it's because they didn't have any authority to teach. And that was obvious from anyone who listened to them. But not so with Jesus. You notice... He doesn't teach like the scribes. He teaches as one with authority. This is key. This is key to understanding the passage. Because what Mark is seeking to show us here is that there may have been many great speakers in the world of first century Judaism. There may have been many people who could stand up and hold the attention of a crowd. But there was no one no matter how eloquent in their exegesis of the rabbinical tradition, that came anywhere near the preaching of Jesus Christ. And the reason that that is the case is because Jesus Christ has an authority that no one else had. Why does he have this authority? Well, he has this authority because he is the eternal Son of God, who has come from the very bosom of the Father, to exegete the Father to His people. You see, Jesus Christ has His own authority in and of Himself. He doesn't have to go and consult the commentators when He explains the Old Testament. He can tell you what it says because it's His Word. He has no need of assistance in exegesis. He is the authority and He speaks as one with authority. And you can see it in the, in the writing of Mark, just written on these people's faces, can't you? They were absolutely astonished at this man's teaching. Now, we've seen their reaction to the authority of Jesus Christ. And it might be a good opportunity for us to take a moment and ask the question to ourselves— I'll ask the question to you. What do you do when you're confronted with the authority of Jesus' teaching? These people are a little bit befuddled. We're going to see that, and their befuddlement is going to increase. But we know who Jesus is. We know what authority he comes with. And so the question that I have for you this evening is, how do you respond to the authoritative teaching of Jesus Christ? Do you respond to him the way you respond to any other preacher, any other religious or spiritual guru of the age? Do you treat Jesus like Oprah? You, you, you see what he says and you say, well, that's an interesting point, Jesus. I have to consult other people. Or do you recognize him as the only authoritative source of truth? Do you recognize his word? as the only authoritative source of truth. That's easy to say, can be a little more difficult to do, especially in our age, Can You recognize the authority of Jesus. You recognize the authority of his word. People are going to say some nasty things about you, aren't they? They might say that you're regressive. They might say that you're homophobic. Perhaps they'll even say you're a misogynist. There's all kinds of mud that's going to get slung on you if you respect the authority of Jesus' teaching. But nonetheless, as we're going to see, we must respect, indeed we must heed, this one's authority. As the text continues, though, we see... Another reaction to the teaching of Jesus, don't we? As we read from verse 23, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now imagine the scene for me, will you? Uh, You can can see these uh, Jewish people gathered together in the synagogue, and we've, we've already noted that they probably got a little more than they were expecting on that particular Sabbath morning. So at this point, they are astounded. You can imagine them there with their mouths gaping open, looking at Jesus, thinking to themselves, who is this guy who teaches like this? But imagine, in the midst of that crowd, the face of that demon-possessed man. Imagine as he stands there or sits there in the midst of these confused people what this unclean spirit must have been thinking. Because you see, as Jesus preaches, this unclean spirit knows something. He knows something that all of the people around him don't know. And you can, you can almost see the look on his face. You can see the paleness coming over him as his blood is running out of his face. You can, you can see the hair standing up on the back of this unclean spirit's neck. You can imagine what he must have been thinking as he finds himself on this random Sabbath morning in the midst of this congregation confronted with the Holy One of God. He knows who he is. And his reaction is absolute terror, isn't it? He cries out. And the crying of this demon-possessed man, this unclean spirit, is instructive, isn't it? Look at what he says. He asks him, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Then he asks an interesting question. Have you come to destroy us? And he goes on to identify him. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now the question might be asked at this point what is going on in this demon's mind? You see, as he looks upon the Savior, this demon, realizing who Christ is, correctly identifies him as the King of God's kingdom. He correctly identifies the man standing before him, preaching to these people, as the one who is about to defeat his own kingdom. As he looks upon Jesus, he sees clearly what nobody else sees, which is the imminent defeat, the imminent destruction of the kingdom of darkness. And he reacts accordingly, doesn't he? He reacts in terror. He calls him here the Holy One of God. That is an interesting phrase. It's an interesting phrase. You might be thinking in the back of your mind, why does he identify him this way? Well, if you cast your mind back to the book of Psalms, you'll remember in Psalm 16, which we sing fairly regularly, that the Word of God tells us there that the Holy One of God will, what? He will not be allowed to see corruption. He won't be allowed to see corruption. And there, it might not be obvious, but as we turn our attention to Acts chapter 2, and we see the preaching of the Apostle Peter there on the day of Pentecost, to all those Jews gathered around them, he points out to them something that's rather important. He says, do you think Psalm 16 was talking about David? Well, it couldn't have been. Because David is dead and buried. And he's seen corruption. But he points out to them that there is one who has not seen corruption. There is one who death could not hold. There is one there identified as the Holy One of God, who was not defeated by death, but rather defeated death itself. You see, this demon has a pretty good understanding of the Old Testament's messianic theology. At least he has a better understanding than everybody else around him. And he correctly identifies the fact that the one standing before him is the Messiah, the one who has been promised, who will come and who will establish God's kingdom in such a way that it will never end. You see, this demon recognizes the redemptive significance of Jesus. The people reacted to the nature of his teaching, but they didn't understand exactly who he was. But the unclean spirit, he understands who he is, and he reacts to the significance of the earth-shattering significance of his appearance. You may be thinking to yourself, seems like this demon is kind of overreacting. I mean, yesterday, a good number of us were standing in front of a building that operates for profit on the business model of killing children. And you may be asking yourself, huh, I don't think this demon had to worry about as he thought he did. Because it seems to me like the kingdom of darkness is doing just fine. Matter of fact, it seems to be running on all cylinders. Everywhere we look in our world, it looks like darkness. Everywhere it looks like truth is in retreat. And darkness is advancing. And, and I would suggest to you, friends, that when you begin to think like that, you look upon this unclean spirit's reaction to the Savior. Because you see, this, this unclean spirit not only has better theology than those people there that day, oftentimes I think he has better theology than we do. Because you see, he recognizes something about Jesus' appearance. He recognizes that while the kingdom of Satan will not be destroyed in its completeness at that very moment... He recognizes that with the appearance of the King of Glory, the beachhead of God's kingdom has been established. You can think for a moment of World War II. You see, the Nazis weren't defeated until 1945, but as soon as the Allies had established a beachhead around Normandy, the war was over. It was done. It was only a matter of time. And such is the case with the kingdom of Satan. You see... Christ has struck the death blow already. Even here, his appearance, this demon recognizes that it is the beginning of the end. You see, friends, the battles continue to rage, no doubt. They continue to rage all around us. But the war can be fought from our position with confidence. It can be fought with confidence because we see here and in many other places the important reality that Jesus will get the victory. There's no fight here. This demon is not you know, harboring some potential option in the back of his mind for an overthrow of God's kingdom. No, he reacts appropriately because he realizes that the end is standing right in front of him. It's interesting, though. The older commentaries... I was struck by this when I was reading for this sermon. They see something here that many of the modern commentaries don't see. I think it's significant. They look at this demon, and they look at the reality that, as we've already noted, he knows better than everybody around him. But we can put it this way. He has a thoroughgoing Chalcedonian Christology. This guy has dotted his theological i's and crossed his t's he knows more about jesus than everybody around him but he has that most disturbing really kind of faith that we hear about in the word of god think for a moment of james chapter 2 what does the apostle tell us there he tells us that the demons believe but they tremble friends this demon has that kind of faith that kind of belief. Well, what we see before us here is a demonstration of what it looks like to be one who knows about Christ but does not have a personal relationship, if you will, with him. Knows about him, but he doesn't know him in a saving way. And even now, as we observe this kind of faith, friends, we ought to examine our own hearts. But what are we trusting are we trusting in our knowledge about Christ? Are we putting our hope in the reality that we understand the doctrine of election or something like that and then and, and our friends at the Methodist church don't? Or are we putting our hope in Christ? It's a question that we should all ask when we encounter passages like this. But we've seen the reaction of the people. We've seen the reaction of of the unclean spirit. Look with me, if you will, at the rest of this passage. Well, what does Jesus do? This is the only dialogue we get from Jesus here in verse 25. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him, cried out with a loud voice It came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So we've seen one reaction, the reaction of the people the first time. We've seen another reaction, the reaction of the demon. And now we see yet another reaction of the people. And this time the people react in amazement At the authority of Jesus, demonstrated how? Demonstrated in his power. Demonstrated in the reality that when Jesus tells this demon to leave this man, there is no argument. You see, Jesus says jump. And this unclearing spirit says how high. He has no means to resist Christ. It's interesting, this error of history, there were many stories about exorcisms, many stories about exorcisms. But most of these stories went something like this. An exorcist would meet an unclean spirit, a demon, whatever happened to be the foe in this particular story, and he would immediately go about trying to exorcise the demon. And oftentimes, there would be something of a spiritual scuffle involved. You know, the demon would say one thing, the exorcist would say another thing, and he would kind of rummage around until he got just the right incantation or he got just the right combination of things to eventually exorcise the demon. And this passage stands in stark contrast to all of those kinds of stories. You see, there's no scuffle here. It's immediate. Jesus says, leave, and he says, okay. Okay. The authority of Jesus demonstrated in the power of his word. But there's another thing going on here, I think, in the text. And if you would allow me, I invite you to step back with me for just a moment and consider what's going on here at a higher level. If you were to read all of Mark chapter 1, you would note that at the very end of the passage you come upon a section that deals with Jesus cleansing a leper. And we see him casting out demons and healing people all over the place in Mark chapter 1. It's interesting, though, that the language he uses to speak about this demon is quite similar to the language that we could see used about the leper. In verse 40, the leper comes to Jesus and he implores him. He kneels down to him and he tells him, You can make me clean. You can make me clean. You see, the the leper was unclean. The spirit here in this passage is unclean. Now, what does that mean? Well, we're familiar with the Old Testament Levitical law, right? We're familiar with the idea of uncleanness from the Old Testament. Oftentimes, we don't treat it as seriously as we ought to. You see, ceremonial uncleanness is nothing to sneeze at. Why is that the case? Well, ceremonial uncleanness does something. It puts up a barrier. It puts up a barrier to fellowship between one of God's people and the rest of God's people. It keeps people away from the people of God. But more importantly, it keeps them away from God himself. You see, unclean people are not able to come into the presence of the Lord. They're not able to come into the courts of the temple. They have to stay away. You notice, if we think about this concept of uncleanness that we see used here in, John, or in Mark chapter 1, you notice what Jesus has done here. Jesus has entered this synagogue. He has exposed a secret uncleanness, hasn't he? I don't think anybody in the synagogue realized that Jimmy sitting on row four was demon-possessed, right? That's probably unlikely. They wouldn't have seen that until Jesus came in, but Jesus exposes the uncleanness in the midst of these people. And what does he do? Well, just like he cleanses the leper... And he makes him clean. So he cleanses this congregation, doesn't he? See, Jesus comes into the midst of this unclean people. And he casts the uncleanness out from them. That's a significant point, friends. It's a significant point. You see, Jesus is showing us here in his actions already at this extremely early stage in his ministry. A picture of what he is going to do on a microscopic scale he shows us that part of his mission is to declare the kingdom of God yes but it is also to remove the barriers that exist between God's people and fellowship with their God that's important and friends I want to say this to you this evening The same Christ, the same Jesus who was able to exercise the uncleanness from the midst of this synagogue is able to take your uncleanness away as well. The Savior that was able to cast this powerful demonic force out in the blink of an eye is able to take away your sin. And is able to restore fellowship between you and your Creator. I would invite you, friends, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not reached out to Him, taken a hold of Him, received Him by faith, and you're not at this moment resting upon Him for your cleanness, for your salvation for your fellowship with our glorious triune God, friends, the offer stands today. This one, this Jesus, can make you clean. Just as he cleanses the synagogue, just as he cleanses the leper later, he can do the same for you. As we consider the rest of this passage, we've seen that Jesus' exorcism of this demon, it has another effect, closer to home here. It, It doesn't just picture something, but it does something. You see what's happened here as he's exercised this demon. They're amazed again, right? And they question among themselves, and they say, What is this, a new teaching with authority? And they note that even the unclean spirits obey him. Now think about what's happened in their minds, right? They have seen him come into the synagogue. They've seen him preach as if he has authority. And it was astounding to them when that happened. And maybe they were sitting there thinking to themselves, this guy talks like he has the authority to say the things he says. But but does he really? Is he really able to make the claims that he makes? And then he goes... And he commands an unclean spirit to leave somebody, and the unclean spirit leaves. And they're left confronted at a deeper level with Jesus' authority. You see, talk is cheap, isn't it? I can stand up here and I can say whatever I want to say. But when somebody tells you, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand... And then he commands unclean spirits and they flee before him. That comes with a greater degree of authority, doesn't it? You see, Jesus' miracle here confirms Jesus' teaching. This is going to be the pattern throughout the rest of the New Testament, isn't it? We see it all over the place. Jesus, or even the apostles later, will come and they'll preach, they'll teach. And what will accompany that? Signs and wonders and miracles. And what's the purpose? Well, the purpose is that the people who witness the teaching and the preaching realize that it comes with the authority of God, who is able to do all the things that they have witnessed. But then last of all, before we close, note this verse that we've left here to the end. And at once, in response to this, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. That's understandable, isn't it? Think about what you would do if you were here in this place and a similar event had happened to you. Think about what you would do if you showed up to church in the first century and you came into the synagogue and you sat down and you heard this kind of preaching and you saw this kind of power demonstrated before you. What would you do? Well, you wouldn't be able to contain yourself. As soon as you left the building, you would be telling whoever you bumped into about what you had just witnessed. Friends, if this was happening today, we wouldn't be out of the parking lot before we would see people on their cell phones calling up their relatives and their friends. You're not going to believe what I just saw happen. That's the response that these people have to Christ. Because they've encountered something that has amazed them. It has astonished them, and they can't wait to tell other people about it. I think it raises the question legitimately for us, are we still excited to tell people about Jesus? I mean, we know more about him than they did. Do we have an enthusiasm to share the gospel with unbelievers? Or... Are you, I wonder, like I am often, and unable to be bothered to tell people about this Jesus? Friends, this passage demonstrates for us what it looks like to have a powerful encounter with Christ. It's going to have a result, it's going to have an effect. If you've experienced it, you're not going to be able to contain it. I think we ought to meditate on that, friends. We ought to meditate on that. Consider what we really think of Christ if we're never excited to tell anybody about him. Consider what they says about our own spiritual condition. And encourage one another. Encourage yourselves to seek to cultivate this kind of excitement, this kind of feeling, this kind of response to who Jesus is and to what he does. But as we close today, I'll point us again to the question that I answered, or I um, opened the sermon with. What are you going to do with this Jesus? How are you going to reckon this evening with the Savior that you see displayed before you? These people we see reacted in astonishment and amazement. They reacted to the one that they saw in all his glory displayed before them. And friends, we have it in a much greater fullness than they did. I would pray that this evening as we go forth from here that we would go forth submitting to the authority of Jesus Christ that we would go forth living in the light of his redemptive significance in the confidence of his victory over the kingdom of Satan and that we would go forth comforted by the power that we see on display here which is at work in the world for our good and for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray, O Lord, that as we reflect upon the person and the work of our Savior, that we would be animated by the picture that Marcus painted for us. That we would know him deeper. That we would love him in a stronger way. That we would take confidence that if you and your son and your spirit are for us, who indeed can be against us? We pray, Father, that this would be true of us as we leave this place. That you would use us, even us, weak, often discouraged sinners, to be an instrument of your grace and your good in this world. We pray this in the strong, the powerful, the authoritative name of Jesus Christ. Amen.